This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Andrew Walter from the University of Melbourne. Andrew joined me to discuss the latest in UK politics, including the demise of UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the final round of the Tory leadership contest between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. We also talk about some of the other Tory leadership contenders who have since left the field but are making their mark in the Tory party, including Kemi Badenoch. I'm now joined by Professor Andrew Walter. He is a return guest to this show. He's based at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne and uh, Professor Andrew Walter is an expert in international relations and he does have a real interest in finance in particular. So he's got a very wide ranging expertise. And Andrew has just had a a little trip over to the United States, Washington DC, as part of his scholarship being a 2021 University of Melbourne Fulbright Scholar. He is now back in the country though, and I'm sure he's been paying close attention to the United Kingdom and their political situation as anyone who has a minor interest in it would, given just how critical these last, I guess, month has been for UK politics. Of course, there's been a big and slow build up to this moment where Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, eventually resigned, although he didn't actually use the word resign in his resignation speech but it's clear that he's stepping aside now and we do have a Tory party leadership contest on our hands. The two final candidates being Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. I welcome Andrew onto the show once again. Hi, Andrew, and thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Hi, Amy. It's uh, great to be here. Always a, a pleasure. Yeah, I always enjoy our chats and we always have a lot of fun, probably because it's not our political situation we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) which is heartening. But uh, it's not that heartening for those in the UK who seem to be struggling a lot at the moment with many issues, COVID being one of them, although it seems to be taking a political backstep or not being prominent anymore in, in our conversations, but it certainly has been in the last couple of years. But also their economic situation is really pretty dire at the moment. Yeah, look, it is. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's generally true that we live in a in a world of uh, what some people call poly crises. Amy, um, there's so much going on at the moment in the world, not just, of course, in the UK. I think what's interesting about UK politics, in a way, is that the UK, as you said, is, or at least certain parts of the UK, and perhaps particularly the uh, Conservative Party selectorate, uh, who's going to choose between these two candidates is in denial about some of the crises and their causes um, and very focused on on others. Um, whether they're prioritising uh, the right kinds of concerns and issues, I think, has a lot of the rest of the UK deeply worried. It does sound that there has been a lot of culture war issues coming up uh, in this candidate contest. And we will get to those, but I thought I might take us back a little bit in time, if we can take ourselves back a few months even, in the term of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom. We had seen some major scandals, as you say, polycrises and you know, these were political scandals that I don't think anyone thought a politician could recover from or withstand, especially one would say Partygate, 
where we saw so many lockdown parties at Number 10 Downing Street where the Prime Minister works and lives that the Prime Minister himself actually attended some of them and was fined by the police for attending at least one of them. I mean, this was something that you know, caused a great amount of consternation and outrage among the people of the UK who had largely done the right thing and in many cases not seen their dying loved ones in hospital, not attended a funeral because they weren't allowed to have gatherings. And yet we saw politicians on the Conservative side flouting these rules. We've seen, you know, the Sue Gray report come out and obviously the police conduct an investigation and I wonder what your reflections are on not only their actions but also their response to their actions. Quite extraordinary, really, uh, the past three years of Boris Johnson's tenure. Um, you're right, uh, he broke pretty much every norm in the book. Um, and, you know, one could add your list uh, of norm-breaking there, the, the fact that uh, the Queen was among those, uh, the still deeply respected Queen, um, was among those people unable to uh, uh, fully pay uh, her own respects uh, to her uh, recently departed husband. Boris Johnson also tried to prorogue parliament, that is basically shut it down, uh, when it wouldn't agree with him, in contradiction to long-standing British norms uh, in parliamentary politics. So he, he broke pretty much every rule in the book, really, including the implicit rule that a prime minister fined and sanctioned by the British police uh, ought to resign. He remains to the last, uh, largely unapologetic for any of that. And extraordinarily, uh, again, the uh, Conservative Party membership, which is a very niche uh, set of voters uh, in the UK, uh, are largely in agreement with him that he had nothing to apologise for and that his premiership was a series of great achievements, above all, finishing Brexit, uh, which was his main promise, of course, which has been partly done, um, but Brexit remains and the ongoing consequences of Brexit remain uh, right at the top of the political agenda in the UK, even if not in any way openly admitted uh, by most of the UK political class, but particularly on the Conservative side. And we also saw Boris Johnson's leadership eventually come under question in a formal way by conducting a a vote of no confidence uh, against his leadership, and he narrowly won that vote. You know, there was a bit of speculation that he couldn't last much longer after that, but he was obviously, as the, the popular strongman he is, touting that he was secure and it was a, a true vote of confidence in his leadership. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, he was, uh, has been the most populist conservative prime minister, certainly in living memory, I think. And for some of his colleagues, sought to portray a kind of presidential style of politics in the UK, which, which fit poorly uh, with the Westminster political system that the UK, of course, has exported to much of the rest of the uh, former Commonwealth and empire. And Johnson, you know, I think, um, you know, so in that sense, uh, he was often compared to Trump and other populist figures. He was very much lauded for, for that rule breaking or norm breaking by parts of the Conservative Party and part 
part of the parliamentary party that he very much included in his government and and uh, explicitly got rid of uh, other people who were more traditional Tories who were more respectful of of, of the Westminster political norms uh, that we've been talking about. But, um, you know, in the end, you know, what, what did for him was not all of the other things that you mentioned, but a particular scandal, um, sex and politics and the Tory party have always uh, have always been a, a somewhat toxic mix and uh, the particular Tory uh, who was caught uh, watching pornographic videos uh, in the House of Commons uh, Commons during during Commons business was the source of Boris Johnson's ultimate downfall because he sought to protect him but also um, uh, for effectively forced his ministers to go and defend his claim that he knew nothing about this behaviour when it turned out that he did in the media. And so I think ultimately Johnson's parliamentary colleagues and particularly his government had had enough of uh, him and being asked to defend effectively the indefensible. So what we saw, what we have seen over the past couple of weeks is the parla parliamentary party shifting away from Johnson, but not uh, the, the Tory electorate, that is the, the party members who will ultimately uh, have to choose his successor, who remain in many ways uh, loyal to Boris Johnson, and that I think is storing up a lot of trouble for the future. I recall that there was um, there was also a scenario where a Tory MP had allegedly groped two men uh, when yes. he was drunk at a, yes. a club. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, actually, yes, I got it mixed up. Yeah, the um, so there was the <laughs> there, have been there were so two many multiple. So many scandals in the uh, the the party uh, in recent years. It's it's uh, not not difficult to get them mixed up. Yes. Uh, so actually, yes, it was the groping scandal. Uh, who was a different Tory MP that ultimately provoked those series of uh, ministerial defections, and ultimately something that preceded the vote of no confidence. Uh, the defections of the Home Secretary and the Foreign Secretary, effectively playing the role of uh, you know the the Brutuses that uh, stabbed the the great emperor, you know, and in many ways Rishi Sunak is is paying in part uh, for that uh, betrayal now. Yeah, it does seem that way, and I think for those wondering why you know Boris could be brought down by something that's seemingly not about him but about <laughs> another MP, uh, it appears that it is because he was actually aware of these allegations but had promoted him yeah. into certain roles. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Clearly aware of it and asked other members of his cabinet to lie about uh, the fact that Johnson had known about it uh, to the media. So, so I think from, you know, their point of view it was, you know, they were they were caught twisting and uh, turning in, in media, in the media when it turned out that clearly Johnson had uh, known about this before um, he had uh, promoted that particular MP. So, um, yeah, I, it was really the straw that broke the camel's back uh, that uh, I think many ministers had simply had enough. And as you said, it was Sunak and Javid who actually started that role of resignations from mm. the cabinet that we saw. It was just endless stream of resignations over a 12 to 24 hour period. Yes, um, more than 50 more than 50 members of the government resigned. Yes. Mm. I mean, it's kind of 
surprising to me that it took them that long to decide to resign, yes. given the issues they outlined in their, their letters. They seem yeah. to be around for, for a lot longer. And, I mean, Rishi Sunak, one of his reasons was we don't see eye to eye on policy and I cannot, you know, in my conscience do that. And Javid gave a very strong uh, speech in the House of Commons pointing out his many flaws, Boris, before he resigned. So there was a lot of pressure in the end from some of the most influential within his cabinet. Do you think he just had no choice in the end? Because I I guess everyone kept saying this every time there was a new scandal. Well, he has no choice but to resign now. And and he just never did until this very point. Yeah, well, clearly he was never going to resign unless effectively he lost uh, the confidence of his own party, uh, which he did. Uh, He was deeply reluctant and uh, was showing every sign that he would refuse uh, to move until the bitter end when effectively not only did more than 50 members of his own government resign, he was uh, effectively scraping the bottom of the parliamentary party barrel uh, to find Mm. people people uh, to replace those ministers uh, who had left. So he and really had no choice. And even those replacements actually resigned a day later, <laughs> which was funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, as, as you say, the uh, the people who did resign, uh, you know, suddenly found their principles, uh, mm. people like Javid and Sunak and, and others, and criticised Johnson for effectively not for not for policy errors because fundamentally uh, most of the party um, is talking about continuity with Johnson and that's that's an interesting thing that I guess we're going to talk about with respect to the two main candidates uh, to replace him. So they didn't uh, so much disagree with his policies, although some are trying to distance themselves now or were in the process of bidding um, for the leadership position. But what they talked about was his lack of moral probity and the need to restore trust in the office of uh, the prime minister and and cabinet. But you know, but again, you know, why did it take them so long when there had been so many other scandals that uh, in many ways uh, were worse uh, than protecting a particular individual, you know, who, who as Johnson said, uh, couldn't hold his drink. And we did hear, you know, a lot of Tories who in the very early times, you know, resign or even defect to Labor. We saw, you know, at least one MP mm. do that, saying, is there even a chance that we'll win at the next election because of the backlash against Boris Johnson? Although, you know, an electorate generally has a short memory, I don't think many people would forget the lockdown parties because it was such a, a really visceral thing yeah. that everyone had gone through traumatised practically and had their own things to deal with. And, and, you know, they were basically not only blatantly partying, but then denying there were parties in Parliament, saying they would investigate them. And, you know, there were just so many political manoeuvring around this issue that they didn't even take responsibility for their failings, it seems. No, well, it's not clear that Johnson ever really took the office of Prime Minister entirely seriously. He allowed uh, so-called wine time Fridays uh, to become a tradition in Downing Street under his tenure. There were lots of other scandals like the refurbishment and who paid for the refurbishment of the Downing Street flat. So it, it really is quite extraordinary list that's probably only... Well, certainly rivaled and uh, outweighed by uh, everything, all of all of Donald Trump's peccadilloes in mm. the United States over his four-year tenure. 
So, you know, certainly the two candidates, uh, Sunak and Truss, will try to restore a sense of sobriety uh, to Downing Street. Um, but you're right, uh, the, the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats Democrats uh, in the forthcoming election in the UK, whenever that will be, and that's now, of course, um, much more uncertain, will keep reminding uh, the British public about those parties, but about many other things. And the fact, as I mentioned or hinted at earlier, that Johnson is uh, at least saying that he will retain his seat in Parliament and will revert to his favourite position of criticising without taking any responsibility, which was in fact a hallmark of his uh, prime ministerial tenure, that he will continue in that role in many ways more comfortably because you know he'll be able to criticise from the sidelines and to rile up the Conservative base and so people will be very easily, I think, reminded uh, of what happened during Boris Johnson's premiership. Yeah. Just while we cap off that premiership and then jump into the, the Tory party leadership contest, I did want to mention Russia. Uh, given mm. the war in Ukraine, you know, even just before Boris Johnson resigned, we saw that he admitted that he met an ex-KGB agent, Alexander Lebedev, at an Italian palazzo without any government officials present mm. in 2018 when he was foreign secretary. That is, for all intents and purposes, an absolute scandal. Um, but it's yes. not in isolation, is it? Because we have seen so much research and even discussion within the uh, British Parliament in different inquiries that the Conservative Party do have you know, links to Russia. They've accepted tens of thousands of pounds from donors linked to Russia, even since the invasion of Ukraine. So there are general concerns which don't seem to make it that far into the media, although they are reported in places like The Guardian, around their links to oligarchs and to donors and how that potentially compromises them, especially with the uh, the war in Ukraine going on and on. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a really important point and I think just reinforces the general sense that UK politics um, in many ways has not been focused on the really important and serious issues that Britain has to face. Um, there's a large element, as I said earlier, of denial uh, in political debate in Britain. I think Britain, although it has a long-standing reputation for pragmatism rather than uh, ideology in politics, uh, has been deeply political debate in the UK has been deeply disfigured by Brexit. Um, the latest example of that, of course, was that uh, all candidates um, are rushing to deny the serious delays on the border travel travel to France has anything to do with Brexit. Uh, they're trying to blame it all, as usual, on the French. You know, so that's just one indication. But absolutely, um, the fact that the city of London took all of that oligarch money that poured out of Russia over the past couple of decades, laundered it in many cases. Uh, there's a fantastic video, uh, which is free on the um, Financial Times website to all users. I'd strongly recommend that your listeners uh, watch it. Um, it's about basically how London grad uh, became the laundering centre for uh, ill-begotten Russian wealth over the past couple of decades. And that's not an issue that, again, politics in the UK has seriously grappled with. Um, and yeah, um, on, the, on the question of 
the Tory party taking funding uh, from from Russia. Uh, there's been a lot of claims about that. Uh, again, nothing serious has been investigated and no conclusions and reforms uh, have been undertaken. Um, and it's pretty clear also that uh, the remain, sorry, the Leave campaign uh, in Brexit leading up to the 2016 vote also took Russian money. So yeah, lots and lots of scandal and criticism of a more serious kind, not to dismiss the um, you know the the kind of sexual peccadilloes of uh, and the sleaze within uh, the Conservative Party is unserious, but there are some really big strategic questions that UK politics needs to grapple with. Yeah, well, I'll put the link up to that Financial Times video on our social media so people can check it out. Now, let's talk about the Tory leadership contest. We have already seen it go through some different stages, and it is a bit of a different way of doing things to what we do here, isn't it? There's um, a kind of a very different process. And I wonder if you could take us through what's happened up until now. Yeah, so essentially, and this is where, as I said, the the effective split between uh, Tory parliamentary party members and the rank and file membership in the shires really matters because the first phase uh, is one in which all candidates who are interested in uh, the leadership of the Conservative Party first put their hands up. And then there's a, a series of votes within the parliamentary party that successively eliminates the weakest candidates. It was very unclear that Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, um, would proceed to the final round, uh, along with Rishi Sunak, uh, who constantly came at the top of parliamentary party ballots and is generally seen by, I think, uh, at least the plurality of party members um, as the most serious candidate. Liz Truss uh, was uh, engaged in a pretty bitter fight with Penny Mordaunt right to the end and in part with uh, Kemi Badenoch as the the fourth-ranked parliamentary candidate, and it was very unclear whether she would go forward. Mordaunt, after Badenoch was eliminated, uh, looked as though she might have a lot of momentum behind her, but ultimately the right wing of the Tory party after uh, Badenoch uh, withdrew, centred their support on Truss and pushed her through to the final round. That final round um, proceeds over the next six weeks. So now that Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, the two candidates, that now goes out to the party membership. Interestingly, we don't actually know how many eligible voters there are in the party membership. Estimates range between 150 and 160,000 people, so about 0.3% of the British electorate. And uh, it's those members who will be receiving ballots in about a week and will start to uh, fill them out and send them in. So there's everything to play for over the next week. Uh, But essentially, there's been a series of debates between Sunak and Truss. Uh, The last one was last night. And uh, Sunak has a lot of work to do, particularly over the next week, if he's to overcome uh, what looks like a pretty serious 20 percentage point or so uh, disadvantage relative to trust among uh, the Tory grassroots membership. Mm. I'll take us to that in just a moment in terms of the key differences between the two and expand obviously on what you've already shared. But I did want to just identify the wild card, the so-called wild card who did come forth, which was Kemi Badenoch, who was 
born in London to Nigerian parents. That's relevant in the sense that she's become, I guess, quite divisive, really, uh, in terms of some of the issues that she's taken up, culture war type issues around racism, around trans rights, uh, around the free market. You know, she does seem to be particularly polarising. And I, I was really interested in that because she obviously got a lot of support. She got um, a key supporter, Michael Gove, in her corner. And it did seem that although she, it was unlikely she would make it in this round this year, that perhaps down the track she would at least become a contender again. And I was kind of surprised at that, I guess, in the sense that those issues that she has quite strong and very controversial opinions on did seem to galvanise some people within the Tory party, but whether that really reflects where the Tory party wants to go, I guess I kind of wondered what you thought. You know, does she reflect the future or not? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, one one thing just before I say a, a few words about Kemi Badenoch, I mean, the final four is, uh, at least on the face of it, a pretty diverse looking bunch. Mm. This looks like a new Tory party. And I've heard Tories, British Tory friends say Badenoch is just the sort of thing uh, that the Tory party needs. You know, Nigerian orig- ethnic origin, as you've said, obviously a woman. And in fact, among the final three, we had three women. And uh, and of course, Rishi Sunak uh, himself is born of Indian parents. So it looks like a new uh, Tory party competition for the ultimate prize. Now, Badenoch, of course, is on pretty much on the extreme right uh, of the party, and that's why I think at least some of the parliamentary membership uh, probably shifted towards her because they thought that she would very much appeal to the Tory base. She's very anti-woke. She describes herself as a Christian cultural conservative. She's a banker, uh, or at least part of her career was as a banker, like Rishi Sunak, of course. And that, that's interesting in the context of bankers being effectively persona non grata in British politics and policy after the, the GFC, uh, not much more than a decade ago. So things are, things are changing. But whether she's the future, Bardenoch, uh, I have my doubts. She's pretty right-wing uh, relative to the British electorate. So she's quite a long way from the average or median voter. Most of the polling suggests, uh, as Rishi Sunak constantly points out, uh, that only he could beat uh, Keir Starmer in a future election, and that includes Liz Truss, who, of course, is taking up the banner of the right and portraying herself as someone loyal to Boris Johnson, loyal to Brexit, a patriot, uh, likes to drape herself, as Johnson did in British flags on social media. So she's trying to align herself with some of that uh, anti-woke patriotic agenda that was also associated with the, the, the Johnson administration. Sunak, by contrast, those people, including Bardenoch and Truss, like to portray him as a as a smooth, cosmopolitan, metro-type, uh, global financier. Of course, it doesn't help that his his uh, wife, um, from whom most of the family money comes, was also, in effect, accused of dodging uh, British taxes. So there are some interesting cultural divides. Bardenoch is very much on the conservative cultural right, whether that an election-winning formula for the Conservative Party. I very much have my doubts, even though in many ways she's a fresh new face. 
Yeah, that's why it was just so interesting is that people were saying, oh, you know, she's the young emerging face, but then she doesn't seem to have views that would represent, as you say, the general population. But it is concerning that we have seen, you know, the rise of populist right, hard right kind of views in in the United States. So I was curious as to whether any of that will develop <laughs> further after Johnson in the UK. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, what's what's interesting, and, you know, I, I need to be careful here, this may be a little unfair, but um, we should remember that the Tory party selectorate, that is the grassroots membership, is predominantly old, male and white, and very conservative, and uh, uh, again, a long way to the right uh, of the average voter in the UK. Um, and people like Kemi Bardenock, who would not traditionally be their, let's say, their their preferred choice um, for a prime minister and party leader. I think there's an argument that those kinds of candidates need to position themselves in certain ways in order to appeal to that pretty conservative and pretty traditionalist party base. We also see this uh, for Liz Truss. Uh, you know, she's been accused of dressing up like Thatcher, riding on tanks. Yeah. Uh, this sort of thing. Um, she was wearing a know. fur coat as well, I think, when she was visiting. <laughs> yeah. Was it the Ukraine or Russia? I can't remember. Russia, yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Although in in last uh, yeah in in last night's debate, uh, she accused um, Rishi Sunak, who has to do something uh, to convince uh, the base to vote for him in a, in uh, in a week or so. Uh, Sunak was uh, interrupting her often and um, apparently coming across as a bit aggressive. And uh, Liz Truss said that he was ma one of her supporters, rather, said that he was mansplaining mm. over her during the debate, which, you know, um, that sounds a bit like a woke term. So, you know, they're all over the place here. They're having to appeal to different parts of the party, some of whom would not like to see another uh, woman prime minister and who's not generally been seen in the past as another potential Thatcher. But yeah, the Tory party is deeply split um, and we will see if that hurts them as I think it will um, in the next election. Yeah. And if we're looking about the policy substance of what they're talking about, I know they've been having some kind of clashes over taxation as an example. You know, Liz Truss is saying my tax cuts will decrease inflation, which we know is currently soaring in the United Kingdom. But yes. I mean, you know, is there any policy substance and substantial difference between the two candidates, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss at the moment? Well, Sunak is, although, you know, he would not say this, is largely presenting himself as the continuity candidate. He was a Leave supporter from the beginning, unlike Truss, uh, though Truss has had to move further to the right of Sunak uh, on the question of Brexit um, and, you know, would push a very hard line um, on Brexit with the, with the European Union. On uh, questions like taxes, yes, that's probably the biggest difference. And here, Truss looks to be veering into some pretty fantastical, delusional uh, fiscal policy territory and claiming that tax cuts would be disinflationary but would also boost the economy and would also have these wonderful uh, liberating effects on uh, the, you know, the productivity and uh, innovation 
innovation uh, in the British economy. We should note that um, under under the Johnson government, uh, corporate taxes in the UK were cut to 19%, which is relatively low for advanced economies. And yet UK productivity, innovation and growth has been effectively stagnant, uh, the worst performing country uh, alongside Italy within the G7. So the idea that suddenly this would be a transformative um, new fiscal policy agenda for the UK, I think, is is largely delusional, but it's red meat for the Tory base who love this, this traditionalist talk of tax cuts, uh, supply-side economics, unleashing the potential of the great British nation and economy and, and, and all of this kind of talk. The difficulty is that people like Truss, who, after all, she was a... She was a Remainer um, in David Cameron's coalition back in 2015-2016, probably a more sensible person outside of the hustle and bustle of everyday media politics. but uh, she's having to say some things now which will paint herself into a policy corner that may be rather dangerous for the UK if I think is the most likely outcome is that she will be the UK's next prime minister. Yeah, well, she is the front runner, isn't she? And, yeah. and as you say, there's a lot of percentage points to make up for Rishi Sunak. On the one hand, it is, I guess, exciting to see another female prime minister given you know, there's obviously Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. A lot of people might have not particularly thought Theresa May did a, a very good job, but then you bring in Boris Johnson and maybe she wasn't as bad. <clears throat> but if you think that Liz Truss is going to be the one, and, and most media commentators are predicting that, what kind of United Kingdom do you think she's going to foster, you know, whether that is a policy-type sense or even just in a leadership sense? Well, she's big on patriotism. As I said earlier, she's um, like Johnson, pretty good at social media and appealing to the base. She likes to wrap herself in in the flag. She constant. She takes every possible opportunity to mention that again. Unlike Sunak, who went to Winchester, one of the most elite private schools in the UK, she went to a comprehensive in Yorkshire. That she understands the plight of poorer people in the UK. She would therefore, unlike Sunak, I think continue more strongly with the so-called levelling up agenda in the UK in an attempt to continue to hang on to those so-called red wall seats uh, that were traditionally Labour in the north of England uh, for the Conservatives. She would be pretty tough uh, with the European Union, uh, I think, on, on Brexit, which has... I think, continued to be a serious drag on the economy. It's very difficult to find uh, a sensible economist with the exception of a few few people like Patrick Minford. Most economists in the UK accept that the economic costs of Brexit have been substantial and continuing, and that's going to be a continuing drag on the British economy and on uh, Britain's relations with the European Union, which looks set to deteriorate quite substantially, I think, in the middle of a of a war or, or a, an unspoken war with Russia. So that's going to be a big problem for the future. But it looks like Truss, in order to obtain the top job, is willing to continue to stick on a path, uh, in a sense, which will lead to a future more substantial conflict with the European Union on trade. So that's going to be very bad news for the British economy. Uh, I think it's very likely, too, that um, she will try 
to push through some tax cuts, and that means probably rising inflation, perhaps a, a strengthening pound and rising interest rates, which uh, which will again help some of her supporters who tend to have more savings than the average Brit um, and who will probably like uh, a stronger pound, if it, even if it leads to higher rates of unemployment in the UK. So I think there's troubled times ahead. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't uh, think that the UK is going to be a particularly fun or, or better place politically or economically to be in over the next five years than it has been over the past five. I'm speaking with Professor Andrew Walter and we're talking UK politics. Just finally, Andrew, the UK is obviously not just England, although at times it seems in Westminster it it feels like that. And uh, I'm sure some of the areas like Scotland do often feel forgotten. And obviously there's Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland and some of those small little islands around um, dotted around the UK. And Scotland in particular has certainly been raising its voice uh, through Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister, around a referendum on independence in 2023. This currently seems not based on a legal basis. It seems quite aspirational at the moment. But do you think that a future Tory party leader like Liz Truss would be any more open to facilitating that type of thing, to being more inclusive about the the United Kingdom and and seeking to try and minimise the chance of independence? Where do you think she'll sit on that debate? I haven't heard her talk about it very much, uh, I have to say, but, you know, she's a a great Britain patriot. And uh, I think, again, that if she wins this top job, she will owe it to an appeal uh, to the Tory base right. That is a pro-union right. Uh, and she will continue to work with the unionists uh, in Northern Ireland, for one, who oppose uh, the North- Northern Ireland Protocol uh, Agreement with the European Union. Um, and I think on Scotland, I, I think that also means that, like Johnson, she's lo- very likely to continue to oppose the legality of a future uh, Scottish referendum on independence. And I think the fact that she will be beholden uh, to the Tory base um, means, again, uh, that another collision course with the Scots is very likely. There is very, very little support for uh, the Conservative Party in Scotland. Mm. Um, and and I think that that is likely to feed ongoing demands for a second referendum on independence in Scotland. And, um, and of course, Scotland, too, um, is much less keen on a future conflict with the European Union than is, um, than is the English Conservative Party. And so, again, I think there are many reasons to expect um, a rising crescendo of conflict on this question. And I think, um, well, who can predict the future? But I think mm. it's going to mean that a future Scottish independence uh, is more likely than not at some point. Yes, absolutely. The, the sentiment is really growing and it seems to be over 50% now yeah. uh, at the moment. And obviously, if Liz Truss does make it, there will be a bigger difference between herself and Keir Starmer, the Labor opposition leader, as compared with Rishi Sunak in the sense that, as you say, Sunak believes he has a better chance of defeating uh, Labor at the next election. Yeah, he does. So Liz Truss may have a pretty... 
a pretty limited tenure if she does become the next uh, British Prime Minister. I think, you know, the legacy of the the sleaze, uh, the disruption, and so on is pretty tiring uh, for a lot of British voters. Um, and if, uh, as I suspect, um, the next two years economically and diplomatically with the European Union and beyond are going to be pretty rocky for whoever is prime minister. Uh, I think the odds of, uh, say, someone like Liz Truss winning um, against Keir Starmer, um, Keir Starmer's Labour Party uh, in the next two years is, I, I think at the moment, you'd have to bet against that. Rishi Sunak, you know, at the moment, he's leading in the polls as the only candidate uh, who could potentially beat Keir Starmer, who is not the strongest uh, Labour Party leader, it must be said, in uh, in recent memory. But, uh, you know, again, uh, the choices for whoever is Prime Minister are going to be uh, pretty much a poison chalice over the next couple of years. And it's very difficult to see the sort of sunlit economic uplands that Liz Truss believes her policies will deliver uh, appearing uh, sufficiently in time for the Tory party to win a fifth time in two years' time. That's mind-boggling to, to consider. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been utterly fascinating hearing from you about all of these issues. I really do appreciate your time and insights today, and I hope we can catch up again when we know uh, exactly what's happened in this contest yeah. at the end. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Amy. Uh, great pleasure to talk to you. And you. I've just been speaking with Professor Andrew Walter, who is a Professor of International Relations at the University of Melbourne and is also a 2021 University of Melbourne Fulbright Scholar. And we've just been discussing all things UK politics, the downfall of Boris Johnson and the current Tory leadership contest. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.